I'm KCT, and this is Going Up North, the podcast where I take interesting people out on the ice to try their hand at a family tradition, spearfishing. While we wait the hours it may take for the opportunity to spear a northern, we'll shoot the shit, have some laughs, tell our stories, and hopefully go home with one in the bag. Returning this week, my guest is Dr. Anton Troyer, professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University, author, speaker, historian, and this week, we continue our conversation about education, history, politics, protest, and indigenous issues. A general disclaimer is needed for this one, though, because we ran into some pretty spectacular technical difficulties. So please keep that in mind, and my apologies, as we find out whether or not we were successful from last mm-hmm. week's fish hanger. Use a smaller one. Tree pounder or something. Oh, well, that's the one they want you to get. I could have waited. I might have got a better shot at it. Yeah, we've got a, a ceremony when someone gets their first kill, like in their hunting or whatever. In former times, they used to cook the whole deer and people would be living in a wigwam village and they'd eat the whole deer at the feast. But now we're kind of a little more scattered and busy in jobs and schools. So we'll like, we still have a big family, so we'll cook up maybe half a deer or something, invite everybody over. And then instead of just eating, you know, they'll do a little prayer. And then uh, one of the providers for the kid who got their deer will ritually feed them so they'll hold a spoon of food in front of them and they'll say their name and offer them the food and the kid has to refuse the first bite and say no i'm thinking about children who don't have enough to eat i'll say oh okay I'll put the food back and get another spoonful and offer it up to him again he'll refuse a second time push the food back say no i'm thinking about my elders who can't get out in the woods to hunt for themselves Ah, okay. He'll put it back and get another spoonful. Offer again. After refuse a third time. No, I'm thinking about my family and my community, people who came here today to support me. Ah, okay. And then they'll put it back and get another spoon. Offer it a fourth time. Then they'll eat. Then they'll say, all right, you just changed your life. Because up to today, you're what we call a dependent. You're depending on everyone in this room to provide all of your food. And there they were parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles. But today now, you provide for all of us. That's what it means to be an adult. So from today on, you'll have a special power. And it's the power to gather resources. You'll have it when you go hunting. You'll have it when you pick blueberries. You'll have it when you catch a fish. You'll have it when you get a job. That's that power to gather resources. So. Use your power and think about children who don't have enough, elders who can't get it for themselves, your family, your community, and then they give away the rest of their first kill, like packaged up deer meat or whatever. Okay. And so they're impoverished, but rich. And, uh, you know, it's usually a teeny bopper or something getting their first deer, so they they puff up and they're happy and proud. And then uh, all the other successful hunters kind of give them teachings or words of encouragement and um, and stuff like that. 
and say you're not just hunting for horns, you know, you're hunting for food and you respect animals, but, um, you know, it's part of the cycle of life and, you know, different things like that. And, man, I got to say, like, because I have a lot of kids and I've done a lot of experimenting on them, that this one has a lot of impact on them. So, like, the little rituals we have, they can, uh, they reflect the values that people have, but they also shape them. So, for example, I had a friend one year, he was complaining, you know, oh, man, my back went out. It's just hard for me to get out in the woods. I can't hunt, and I miss that, and, you know. So we were just visiting. But one, one of my teenagers was there. He's 16. He's listening. And uh, he didn't say anything. But he went out, and he got a deer, and he packaged it up, you know, cleaned it up and packaged it up, and he tanned the hide, and he went over to my friend's house and filled up his freezer and gave him a tanned deer hide. Man, my friend was just, like, on the verge of tears. He's like, I didn't know people remembered this. That's awesome. And so, to me, like, hunting, fishing, things like that, it's not just because it's fun. Although, of course it's fun, you know, but it's about what kind of values do we want people to have? And to me, it's an opportunity with my kids to say, when you're doing this, it's not all about me. You know, it's about how, how are you going to transition into being an adult who's like responsible to other people? And, uh, yeah. And so I guess I've seen that have a bigger impact than any number of lectures I could have given my kids or books or videos or whatever, you know? And, uh, yeah, so it doesn't mean that it's a guarantee or a slam dunk, but you know those sort of things seem to have a big impact, and it keeps people grounded and real, I think. But beyond that, you know, just kind of being grounded and knowing who you are, and um, laying your hands on the the food that you're taking, and frankly, like to me, you know, a deer that's been running around in the woods for its whole life has had a probably a lot happier life than one that's been you know, pumped full of hormones, shackled to a rail, you know. Oh, absolutely. Or whatever. And so, you know, it is the taking of a life, and that's not done lightly, but it's not done just to lay it to waste. Mm-hmm. And frankly, like, what is harvested out in the woods, I don't, I don't see how any of it really goes to waste. Between the crows and the coyotes on the gut pile, like everything's being consumed and transferred back into energy one way or another. Right. Yeah, a buddy of mine said he was out. He uh, called me the other day and he was like, dude, I I speared one when I was pulling it up. It fell off the spear. I've never had that happen before. And I said, well, it will happen. I mean, welcome to the world. You know, you're, you're learning all these things. And I said, it happens. And he goes, but I know that it's going to get eaten. I don't feel that bad. Yeah, it's e- like eagle yeah. will be on it in April. Right, or the other fish will <coughs> find it and right. eat it, or you know, it's like yeah, it's a good way to think about it. I mean, it sucks you yeah. lost a fish, but like you say, it'll get recycled somehow. Yeah, yeah, and I think in this day and age too, like a lot of times people, I, there's an opportunity cost being so busy working, you know. And keeping kids so busy with school and extracurriculars that, like, 
spending time together as a family or like intergenerational transmission of knowledge. Like we just warehouse our kids and we, we have professionals who give them the knowledge that we want them to have. And we're not taking responsibility as parents to like say, here's what I want you to know. And, right. And uh, it's a missed opportunity to like really instill values. And I, I think a lot of people struggle like, well, what the hell are the values I have? What is my culture? And what do I want to give my kids? And, you know, they kind of end up with, well, I want my kids to be, you know, have a long, healthy, happy life. So financial prosperity, you know, whatever they're going to teach them in school. Cool. I support that. And I've kind of abdicated responsibility from like, you know, but to me, these kind of things provide an opportunity to, to do that. That's meaningful for everybody. And we like, I just find like we really bond a lot when we're out there doing that stuff. And I, and my, a lot of my crew are teenagers now too. So they're like at the height of this stuff, but right. Yeah, I went salmon fishing out in British Columbia. Okay. Holy crap. That was like about the most fun fishing I've ever had in my life. It's like catching 40 and 50 pound largemouth bass. They oh just fight God. like crazy and delicious and oh my gosh. Yeah, that sounds awesome. It was about as big of a fish as you can get where you don't have to be just anchored in. You know, if you're like deep sea oh, fishing, you're sure. just cranking on a ratchet. And so those are like, you know, you've we were trolling and you did have the anchors but as soon as one grabbed it you know you pull the rod out set the hook and yeah they jump up like you know dive down and oh it's fun that's awesome it's a lot of square swearing and screaming and stuff yeah yeah i act that way when i catch a two-pound bass <laughs> Is there any, uh, I guess, like, specific reason why uh, there isn't a, like, developed Métis population in the States? Yeah, I don't know how much you know about the <clears throat> history of the Métis in Canada, but it's a huge, huge population, and... There it's like a, an officially recognized status as well, right? Right. There, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there were two efforts, um, major efforts amongst the Métis who, um, you know, it's a really interesting group. They, you know, for background for anybody listening who might not know, during the fur trade era, there was a lot of intermarriage between French fur traders and native families. And... The French in general just sent men into the hinterlands and told them to marry native people and, you know, cement their economic relationships with um, marital relationships and stuff like that. The British didn't do quite as much of that, but over time, you know, after the French and Indian War, you know, the French government had to leave, but they left all their people behind. Those are all the French-speaking people, Quebecois in Canada and things like that, and then the Métis folks. And over time, as like this went on for generations leading up to that, the French would do weird stuff, like they'd send the boys from these mixed marriages back to France for a formal education and then put them to work in the fur trade. And then 
the girls they'd keep in country and use as bargaining chips and more arranged marriages and things like that. And so you kind of get this population of people that's growing and it's a mixed crew. So like in the Métis population, um, you know, there's a lot of native blood, although there may be some people who had none. Um, and there's a lot of European blood, although there might be some people who had none. Um, and there even evolved a mixed language that was mainly Ojibwe verbs and French nouns they called Michif. And over time, you know, they, the Métis population didn't really view themselves as indigenous or European, but as something totally independent and distinct. And twice in the 1800s, they tried to gain independence uh, in Canada. Um, most famously, with the most recent one, was the Louis Riel Rebellion. And it was brutally suppressed. You know, the British Army came after them. And, uh, and that's not terribly long ago, by my recollection, right? Like, as no. far as things go? Yeah, that was in, that was in the late 1800s. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Métis population then kind of had a big diaspora. So, like, in both Canada and the United States, and there were Métis people in both places, um, some of the Métis sought refuge and were absorbed into white communities. And even though some were kind of brown, um, you know, they hid out, were supported, and were able to linguistically culturally kind of integrate enough to survive as members of white society in both the U.S. and Canada. Some sought refuge in native communities. And so most of the, on the state side of the border, most of the Métis communities along the Red River Valley um, sought refuge and are part of Red Lake and White Earth and Turtle Mountain um, today. And then some tried to maintain independent communities and um, in Canada actually got formal recognition um, and are part of the kind of First Nations structure up there that you know the First Nations are part of indigenous treaty organizations that had formal treaty relations with the British government now Canadian government there and then um, the Métis you know are considered separate and distinct from that, but treated in a similar fashion with regard to semi-autonomy and stuff like that. But in the States, the Métis were not acknowledged independently and separately. So, you know, some were, most of the population either went to Canada or was absorbed into um, native or non-native populations here. Interesting. Yeah. But yeah, like at White Earth, a lot of the Pemina band, there's a whole, like they have these separate band affiliations. Um, Lake Superior band, Pillager band, you know, Mississippi band, Pemina band. And the Pemina band are, are from the Red River. Those are Métis folks. Okay. And so there's a lot of the big families, places like White Earth and also Red Lake. Yeah, I was also like completely fascinated by just the, the scope of... Uh like the Ojibwe or the Red Lake yeah like spread at the beginning of contact or if you will you know what I mean and like right. just that that kind of blew my I mean because basically the way I was taught or I learned or 
in my strange way was that like you know north dakota sort of west you know was like the dakota tribes and then minnesota you know what i mean it was like right there was like a dividing line right and then it just like <clears throat> reading about it even you know i mean so there's got it like so again i could just be wrong but <laughs> was there so is turtle mountain like what's the tribal affiliation of turtle mountain yes turtle mountain's kind of a mix it's predominantly ojibwe okay but there's ojibwe cree and metis and in fact there are people there who speak ojibwe or cree or michif hmm. um, and the number of michif speakers is very small is there still like interchange between those communities, say like Red Lake and Turtle Mountain, and then even like you know Thunder Bay, Ontario, or yeah, is there like yeah, okay. yeah? So it, I don't know on different levels. So like um, there might be language, culture, sometimes political or economic, you know, groups or consortiums, you know, across big swaths of the territory. But a group like the Ojibwe, you know, there's the U.S.-Canadian border was drawn right through the middle of Ojibwe territory. And then state borders and all these other things. So those do have an impact on the politics for the tribes today. So it's more common, you know, that the tribes in Minnesota will have political functions where they're communicating with each other more regularly and on a sustained basis. Um, and so like a group like Red Lake may be communicating more with Shakopee, Madwakatan, Sioux community than with another Ojibwe group in on the Quebec border or something, you know? Sure. Canada's a little different. They've got, um, they do have treaty areas, but there's, you know, each First Nation is part of, you know, subgroups and then an overall Grand Council of First Nations in Canada. So the liaison process is a, inherently a little bit more inclusive um, and provides more ways for people to communicate with each other. Have you been paying attention to BC? Or like, uh, I just saw the other day that they yeah, busted up. Yeah, there's all kinds up. of stuff going on up there. Yeah, that's gnarly. <laughs> <laughs> like, I also just thought to myself, like, Jesus, in America, there'd be dead people. Yeah. Like... I mean, maybe that's just my distrust know, or misplaced, or, you know, unfaith in law enforcement, but like, yeah. that certainly looked to be a mess. Yeah, I think so, too. It's weird, you know, Canada, like, 80% of their population lives within 50 miles of the U.S. border. Yeah. And then when you go north of there, it's indigenous space, predominantly. The different provinces in Canada are quite different from each other in some ways like British Columbia has a very like the, the white population there tends to be a little bit more um, like Seattle or something you know this kind of like urban but environmentally aware and conscious um, sympathetic to First Nations concerns um, there's even a big spat that British Columbia had with Alberta which is a lot more like Texas. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, over pipelines and stuff like that between the provinces. And they were like boycotting each other's goods and stuff, which is really bizarre. Hmm. Um, you know, and so. What does know, Alberta have besides oil, I guess? 
Yeah, they got the tar sands, big oil. Um, but, you know, I know they got major, you know, one of the biggest shopping malls on planet Earth. And um, I know it's, and agriculture is huge up there, too. Yeah, Canadian beef, right? Yeah, yeah and, the, and the planes, you know, the Canadian planes are great. Another interesting thing I heard on the radio the other day was sort of like everyone's all talking about the government shutdown and I'm pissed off because I'm not going to be able to file my taxes and I need that money, but like, you know, that's just some whiny thing I have. And then uh, they were talking about how, you know, like IHS is funded that way and like, you know, people are going to start losing their jobs and like being able to like right. maintain the, you know, health of the communities that rely on those funds, you know, and it's just like, mm-hmm. it's like, why isn't that a larger part of the conversation? You know, yeah. it's like people are out of work, but then like the people who are out of work aren't working for things that are necessary for some communities. Right. <clears throat> and geez, the perch yeah. camouflage is like, is unbelievably good. It is. Yeah. <laughs> At least from the top. Right. Ex- yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes you jig for perch and then it, chum somebody else into the hole yeah no you know a lot of people don't realize like for some jobs like well right now like airline inspectors you know are not getting paid to do their jobs you know and so for some of these jobs like people will report to work log their hours and then when the shutdown's over they'll get a big fat check and they just got to like borrow money between now and then so they can survive. But a lot of people don't realize that it, it has a lot of other impacts too. So it can interrupt critical services in many areas. And, you know, this happens um, on Indian reservations, like when they had sequestered funding, you know, with the long term shutdown. At a place like, for example, at Red Lake a lot of the funding for the school is not the same as it is like in Bemidji public schools. So in Bemidji public schools, you know, there's the per pupil funding, which comes through the state government. That's a big part of the budget. But then when they need something else, they do a bonding bill and it goes through an elective process and then comes through property taxes. But at Red Lake, individuals don't own property. So there's no way that they can use that as a revenue stream when they need a new building or to support critical functions for the school. So, and by the way, it's not just Indian reservations that happens to these are schools on um, army bases and things like that too. And so there's some federal funds that are appropriated impact aid that are meant to cover some of the gaps and situations like that. But the problem is when you have a government shutdown or you sequester the impact aid dollars, then what happens is a school district, you can't just like fire a bunch of your teachers and not have anyone teaching the students. So they end up taking out a loan to cover the difference. And on a long-term shutdown, sometimes the um, amount of interest that they have to pay on the loan will force them to cut a couple of teaching jobs Mm. and so that's a permanent impact on the educational opportunities and the bottom line it's not like once when they're done shutting down the government everybody finally gets their money 
they don't get the overage to cover all those interest payments they had to make to cover the gaps. Right, and like you were saying, with some employees, they're going to get their back pay, but if you like miss a funding disbursement, no one's like fighting to give you that back. So yeah, you're just yeah. in the hole that much farther. And another interesting thing that was brought up in this discussion I was listening to was that that then th- these types of situations, like like you say, when you eventually it affects your bottom line enough that you have to cut teachers, it just makes it that much harder to attain and retain quality people for those positions because they're worried their job might not be secure right which impacts the overall health of the community yeah just crazy how interrelated everything is and mm-hmm. <laughs> it's over a fucking egomaniac's wall yeah <clears throat> yeah it you know I think both the Democrats and Republicans have made some really terrible mistakes with the whole immigration discussion. You know, ultimately, the Democrats kind of trip up, basically, because it sounds like they're saying it's okay to break the law. And I just think, as a political stance, that doesn't resonate well with a lot of people but the Republicans are just fear-mongering with this whole thing mm-hmm. like the majority of illegal immigrants in America come by airplane right it's people that overstay their visas right, right? yeah so uh, build a wall <laughs> right yeah right you know and and all of the discussions about like you know, well, it's all the rapists or whatever, but, you know, or terrorists, but most of the acts of violence committed in America are committed by American citizens against American citizens, and most of the terrorists are not coming across the southern border, and, um, you know, I think overplaying and overstating that risk is not only disingenuous, it's, it's manipulative. And absolutely, um, you know, other things too, like when it comes down to it for both parties, you know, all the Republicans have to do as a political move is just not allow any changes to legal immigration and then beat up the Democrats for allowing people to break the law. That works for them politically. So that's all they're doing. So they're not going to fix anything in a positive or healthy way. And the Democrats, you know, just are not positioning themselves politically with a winning explanation of how to solve this. But the solution has to be a change to the legal immigration system. And frankly, although this is less popular with the Democrats, like, Anybody that you allow into the country who has a medical doctorate or a PhD is immediately employed, immediately paying taxes, and there's never been a single MD or PhD who's committed an act of terrorism. So I don't understand why you couldn't start with, with all the shortages of doctors we have and stuff like that, allowing in extremely well-educated people from other countries. Right. 
you know? And we're already at the point where, especially in, you know, critical areas, engineering, things like that, where major corporations um, are building in other areas and we are losing competitive advantage um, in business, but also, you know, many wealthy citizens not only taking employment, but setting up shop and keeping their money in other countries because that's where the growth is, you know. There's a reason, there are many reasons why Amazon has built its largest server field in Ireland, for example. Right. You know, and we should want to compete for that kind of business to be here. And it's very short-sighted to be so xenophobic and anti-immigrant at the expense of our healthy economy. Ultimately, too, you know, um, I think, you know, some people are just afraid that it's a zero-sum game. Like, if, if people of color do better financially within the United States, that it's going to be taking jobs away from white folk or taking opportunity away from white folk and it's it's much the opposite like every person who gets a job is going to be paying taxes and reducing the tax burden that everyone else has to share every person who is incarcerated is going to be a terrible drag on the economics of our political and prison system and every person who is able to avoid that and be a full load-bearing citizen reduces the burden placed on everyone else. And frankly, like, if your neighbor's kids do better in school, then the teacher can work faster with your kids, too. And if your neighbor's house value goes up, then guess what? Your house value goes up, too. So, like, we all do better when we all do better. Right. And somehow people and the Dem the Republicans in particular keep casting this as they're going to take away from you. They're going to take your jobs away from you. They're going to be, you know, taking your safety away from you. And it's this adversarial positioning that I think is really damaging and divisive. And, um, you know, and it's not just about the humanitarian issues, although the humanitarian issues matter too. The Democrats talk a lot about the humanitarian issues, and I think those are definitely considerations but you know having an understanding of the core economics is um, critical to you know a paradigm shift in politics on it yeah you know, I, I don't know I think the best way to have a safe border between the US and Mexico is not like with the most militarized border but with a border that looks like the one we have with Canada yeah right like that's a safe border Mm -hmm. And instead of thinking about, you know, us, them, keep them out, like, how do we have appropriate rules and regulations and monitoring of, you know, people who are coming in? And then how do we enable Mexico to provide greater peace and prosperity there so that the incentives for people to come here change and like any Canadian who gets a job in the United States is going to have a work permission to come here they don't have to change your citizenship or sneak across a border to do it and 
I don't see why we shouldn't be able to do that for Mexicans. So what do you actually teach at uh, BSU? I teach Ojibwe language. And I'm trained as a historian, and then I, but I teach mainly Ojibwe language, some history, culture. What does that program look like? Uh, like, ethnically, I guess. Kind of like who's ethnic. taking the classes? Yeah. Um, we have a mix. Yeah. So, you know, there's we have an Ojibwe language program. There's also Indigenous Studies program, and. I would say we do have a lot of native students who take the classes, um, but there are quite a few non-native students who do too, because if you're going to work in any field like criminal justice, nursing, social work, you know, education, if you're going to be working in this area, you work with a lot of native people. And I think a lot of the non-native people are like, all right, give me some tools to equip me for the world I'm going to work in. Sure. So. Uh, there are lots of good people out there who are trying to up their game and realize they didn't get an opportunity to do that K-12. Um, Is there still a Ojibwe language program at the high school? Yeah, there's, um, in the middle school, they have one person, they've got some elective classes, and then in the high school, they have a person. I kind of feel like, um, you know, if you look at like critical skills, to be successful working in this world, what do you need to know? It's good to rethink, you know, like the liberal arts, the core curriculum that we want people to know. And I think like, you know, most people are coming out of a place like Bemidji State are going to be working in Minnesota. So it would be good to equip them for the world they're going to work in, not just as an elective opportunity, but as um, a requirement. So some of the things we've gotten right, like there's this environmental studies kind of requirement for everybody to have an awareness of environment and ecological issues. I think that's good, you know. But I think given what we've been learning about the racial climate in America and the, you know, demographic composition of a state like Minnesota, equipping people better for that would be really helpful. Yeah. I think I want to say I went to college at Concordia in Moorhead. Yeah, and I think if you were an education major, you there was like two one of like two like cultural classes that you had to take, and one of them was the Native American history class mm -hmm. because, like you say, you're either gonna probably go teach in North Dakota, South Dakota, or Minnesota, and you know that's part of it. That's who's there, right? Exactly, and yeah, that was a good class. I mean, I was a freshman, so I wasn't particularly trying too hard, but <laughs> I learned a lot. I read, like, uh, Dennis Banks' book, Ojibwe Warrior, mm -hmm. and, like, that was kind of eye-opening, really. He talks about, um, just sort of, like, the one of the first times, like, thinking critically about the whole situation, he was talking about uh, Stony Point and how he was like, my family fished there every year, my family riced there every year, like, blah 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 and then it's like the end of the line was like and now it's a resort for rich white people and I was like ooh yeah. boy like I know where that is like I know exactly where that is I know exactly what he's talking about like mm -hmm. it's just like hmm yeah <laughs> about that yeah like starting yeah. to think about it and like yeah like you know 
My relatives have been buried in the Bina Cemetery longer than America's been a country. And now I have to buy a funeral plot from a white resort owner to be buried next to my relatives. That's brutal. You know, and it's just... At Leech Lake, you look at the map, and it's a big old reservation, like 40 miles by 40 miles, but 85% of the reservation is the Chippewa National Forest. And, you know, 96% of the reservation is owned by non-native people and entities. 4% is owned by native people. So when you realize how much of the reservation that native people own, it's like, dang, the map doesn't really tell you that. Yeah. You kind of made mention of it in Warrior Nation, too, that the, the government tried to you know, basically take land from Red Lake in the same way by, like, trying to, to, to like, in order to control it by turning it into, like, national forest land and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. Like, is that what happened with the Chippewa Forest, kind of, or? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's still the way it is today, like, you know, yeah, the Chippewa National Forest is a huge, you know, 85% of the reservation, but the reservation has no control over the Chippewa National Forest or its resources. And also, being a national forest is not the same as being a national park. So the national forest regularly, you know, clear cuts national forest property. And none of the finances, you know, financial benefit from the cutting of all of those trees on the reservation goes to anyone on the reservation, goes to the U.S. federal government. And so it's it's hard for the tribe to do things like manage their forests for things that matter to them like you know maybe sugar bush for maple production or you know preserving some old growth forest sections for harvesting medicines or whatever it happens to be and they have no no say or right or authority to do that and then you know to work for the national forest service you know that they don't hire natives, you know? Right. And so then they're like, how come these Indians aren't like making jobs for their people? Like, well, you know what? If you allowed them to control the forestry operations on their own reservation, then I, I bet they would hire some natives. Yeah. Hmm. How do you think like advocacy and protest has changed like post aim oh I, th- I think it's changed quite a bit um you know when you look at whether it's the civil rights movement american indian movement um you know even independence in india you know a lot of these movements have revolved around um highly visible leadership whether it was you know, King or Malcolm X or Gandhi, you know, or even in tribal protest movements too. And on the one hand, those can create, that can create an like iconic focal point for um, dynamic leadership that can be really influential, but it creates a great vulnerability. And most like all those guys I just mentioned were assassinated. And then that really took the wind out of the sails for those movements. Right. 
So one of the things that I've seen happen with Black Lives Matter, with the protest at Standing Rock over the pipeline, if you say, who's the leader of that? There's no one name that just comes to the top. And you've seen a change and a maturation in protest movements that are less person-focused and um, have more diffused leadership. I think there are strengths and weaknesses to that, but it does provide a little bit more um, sustainability to the effort that's healthy. Um, and sharing of power and responsibility, which is also healthy, and uh, less vulnerability to one assassination or something like that. At the same time, um, you know, the issues and dynamics that people are trying to tackle are also really quite complex. So, you know, the, the action items is not just let's dismantle Jim Crow, but, you know, let's look at the, you know, entire environmental and economic infrastructure um, and power dynamics to change the way people live. You know, right. There's some bigger things. They're the right things to think about. But yeah, we're gonna, our area is going to really see a lot of action on the pipeline stuff coming up over the next year or two. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with regard to pipelines, too, this is also something that, like, is just tougher for people in the protest world to really internalize. But, like, as long as we are buying gas... Someone is going to figure out how to get it out of the ground, refine it, and get it to market. And how do you want it transported? You want it transported on a truck? You want it transported on a train? Or do you want it transported in a pipeline? And none of those things is neutral. But there's actually a case to be made about pipelines right. that it may be a little bit safer than some of those other options. And a little so, bit more efficient too, right? right? Like you're not using gas or some other like fuel to power that mechanism as much right. as you would with a trainer, right? I think maybe yep. I'm wrong. But <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you, the long-term solution has to be about building and developing our capacity for love of and use of green technologies and so when americans are loving their electric cars and using them to get from point a to point b and actually reduces the demand for gas then we'll see a shift big time and, you know, some places have successfully engineered shifts in other parts of the production pipeline. Like, you know, Costa Rica quite famously is, you know, 
energy independent right and stuff like that and using green technology for all that stuff and there's no reason we can't and shouldn't be doing that here you know and so those have to be the directions to to move in going forward and that can be done on a policy front so you know it's it's uh kind of nauseating that we've been unwilling to do that but at the same time you know with the pipeline companies and they could be the solution part of the solution instead of just the problem but what is also unfortunate is like if you look at where the oil's coming out of the ground like in the Bakken oil fields in North Dakota or whatever and the place you want to get it to you know Chicago or whatever and you draw a line between point A and point B and actually consider things like the environment so instead of drawing the line that is most financially beneficial to the pipeline company but a line that is most beneficial to the environment that we all depend upon to survive then we'd have a little different discussion mm -hmm. but they don't do that and if, if even better if they draw a line between point A and point B that has greatest consideration for the environment and consideration for sovereign native nations that intersect with proposed routes and then actually had conversations with them about their needs and wishes and took into consideration urban areas and other things and where it would make the most sense to do this and then drew the lines based on those things I, I think I would be supportive of a pipeline but they don't do that they draw the point A and point B line that is most financially expedient for the company and they bulldoze every sovereign native nation and every environmental group consideration and concern and you know on the hierarchy of needs corporate profits are placed above all of these other things and although on the one hand like if you're just looking at companies and stockholder share prices and things like that it might sound like it makes sense but even there I don't think it makes the most sense because that might get you this year's you know quarterly profit report you know quarterly profit reports where you want them but in the long term if they devastate their relationships with native nations and environmentally conscious American citizens be they native or not they will lose vital support that will enable the long-term maintenance of their business model and that's one of the things we're seeing with the pipeline protests are that they actually are effective in ways that nobody saw coming like of course not only at Standing Rock but in pretty much every other place the company has devious and manipulative ways to get what they want and they get what they want right like if there's a holdout like at Standing Rock they build the pipeline up to that community and they build the pipeline away from that community so there's only this one little tiny spot left to resolve 
And then they just keep the political pressure and eventually the military pressure and everything on. And they punch through that last little section. So that's clever, devious, and manipulative, and it works. Because what are you going to do? Draw a huge horseshoe around to, you know, avoid that one spot or rip up, you know, literally billions of dollars worth of work. And, but what we're finding out now is that the protests, um, like every day that there is a delay in the completion of a pipeline is a day that costs a pipeline company crap loads of money. Mm-hmm. And so even if the protest does not succeed in completely rerouting things, they can still cost them lots of treasure mm-hmm. and lots of stress. And so working with some of these constituencies can be a lot more financially beneficial to a company than just bulldozing them. So like, you know, here in Minnesota, the Sandpiper pipeline had to be abandoned um, because of repeated delays in large part due to protest. And because the tribal government at White Earth said, the worst case scenario says that if there's a pipeline rupture on Sandpiper, that it will contaminate Lower Rice Lake in the center of the reservation. That's our prime wild rice bed, and that is a non-starter. We will never agree to that. And so, although it might seem like pipeline companies aren't listening or paying attention, they notice that. So... You know, they, they're looking at, you know, trying to work out cooperative agreements, although it's difficult because it's, it can be like political suicide for a tribal leader to be having an agreement ironed out with a pipeline company. Now, they, the pipeline companies have made communicating with them toxic for tribal people. And so that's not helping their political or economic interests at all. And, you know, I've, I've talked to folks at Enbridge, um, done training for them, you know, a couple times. And uh, I think they're starting to understand these issues a little bit better. But there's so much damage to recover from. I, you know, I, I just don't see, um, I don't see that resolving itself very easily going forward. And if I were CEO... For a company like Enbridge, I'd be taking their green portfolio, and they do have one. I'd be saying, how can we grow this? How can we, you know, position ourselves, not just to win this pipeline this year, but how can we position ourselves to be a viable company 100 years from now when nobody's going to be using gas and oil at all? And let's position ourselves to win there. You know, kind of like how Amazon has a, you know, 100-year view mm-hmm. for how they can rule the world. Yeah. And, and you should have that view, you know. And when it's, when it's thoughtful and well understood, even when Amazon's producing no actual profit, they are now, but... When, when they weren't, people would still believe in that company because the vision made so much sense and it seemed that they were moving in ways that were going to position themselves to win. Right. And stock prices reflect not the actual value of a company, but the perceived value of the company going forward. And uh, that's what I would be doing. And, and I'd also be 
you know, developing any existing pipeline replacements or proposals in concert with environmental and indigenous groups. And frankly, like, if you want to get, you know, the gas from the Bach into Chicago or whatever, then does it make sense to have it transect these very sensitive ecosystems and multiple crossings of the largest river in all of the United States of America? Or does it make more sense to, like, go a little further south and have it do one crossing, you know, or whatever? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and environmentally, you know, it, when you kind of look at all of these things, like, you know, it's not just the resort industry, but the way we position a place like Bemidji is for city on the Mississippi and a whole range of recreational activities and things like that is part of the economy. So why should we risk and jeopardize those things? You know, it, it just doesn't make sense. And then you can see like, you know, for a company like that to work in concert and alliance with and an understanding of all of these different competing priorities, knowing they won't make everybody 100% happy, but that there's actually a way to do what they need to do that's respectful, but they just don't do that. They just double down mm -hmm. and manipulate. And you know, it was pretty sick. You know, it was, it was a different company at Standing Rock with Energy Transfer Partners running the Dakota Access Pipeline, but um, you know, that was... <clears throat> some pretty horrible stuff that happened there. Absolutely. Private security firms sicking dogs on people. You know. That industry is so bizarre to me. Like how I mean, I understand private security if you need it or whatever, you know. But like <laughs> it's just private citizens wearing flak jackets and can't carry an ARs, like what is that? You know, like yeah. where's the rule of law? I mean yeah, and considering that the protesters killed zero people, injured zero people, you know? Yeah. And and to have, like, armored vehicles. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, holy cow, you guys. You know? It's almost like they push for an escalation so they have a reason to... Right, they're, they're trying to provoke... Uh, right. Know, provoke One guy so to throw can, a rock and then right. they can just... You know, return fire, or you know, then it's proof that oh, they're violent. Oh, you know, it's not a valid protest anymore. Like, well, wasn't this country founded on an extremely violent protest? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it was just you know, anything to win. Not realizing that they lose who they are in the process, right? Like. You know, there's a law in North Dakota that is there to protect family farms that prohibits corporations from owning farms and ranches. So, you know, a lot of the protest at Standing Rock was on private ranch land. So Energy Transfer Partners seeks out the owners and offers to buy their whole ranch at a premium. And then the politicians in North Dakota work to circumvent the existing law to provide an exception to allow the purchase so that they can then turn around and say, look, these people are protesting. These protesters are trespassing, you know, 
well, like, does the principle or value of protecting family farms, if that's going to be circumvented in this case, it can be circumvented in any and all cases. Right. It's not the rule of law or the values that matter. It's the win. And then... That's a dangerous precedent. Right. And then there was, like, you know, um, there were families that were camped out there um, that brought children and had homeschool arrangements and things like that for their kids. And so then they, like, weaponized education and social services in North Dakota and said, no, um, the commissioner of education said, I'm in conversation with the commissioner of uh, human services, we view all of these kids as truant, um, even if their paperwork's in place as being homeschooled, or even if they're being homeschooled from the state of South Dakota rather than North Dakota, we will be sending in social services. We will start CHIPS petitions, children in need of protective services. We will have them removed from their homes. Um, and so they were weaponizing social services to attack the families because they didn't believe and support their political position. You know? Yeah. And all of that stuff is just an unexcusable um, corruption of an agency that's supposed to be there to protect families and to protect children from violence and abuse and things like that and instead weaponizing it to hurt those kids because they don't like the political well it seems like we hit time for this episode want to hear the end of this conversation the beginning middle and end of many more tune in next week and see what we end up talking about as the day winds down and we hope for another northern fight to come by as always thanks for listening give us a like and a share follow along on facebook and twitter i'm kct and this is going up north